Well, it's week three in our stewardship campaign, Generous God, Generous Church. And from the look of the crowd, I haven't scared too many off so far. That's a good thing for a pastor. Scary to get up here and talk about that because you think, man, it's going to be, tumbleweeds are going to start coming through here next week. And you'll, you know, it's kind of like an old western. As I expressed in our last message, I'm trying to approach this campaign from a different place, not from a place of you should, you must, you better. I don't want to do that. I want to approach it from a place of, I want you to do this. I, I hope you find this as I get a chance to do this. And so to do this, I, I have a method to my madness. I talked about last week, I want to unlock your heart to a couple things. Week one, we asked if God is angry if I don't give. So Declan, we're on the next slide. Keep up. He's fall asleep. Hey, Declan, how late were you? Oh, you told me you weren't up that late last night. 3 a.m.? That's 2, 2 a.m. Okay. So week one, we asked, is God angry if I don't give? And the answer is no. Week two, we asked, is it really more blessed to give than receive? Yes, it is, because that's how we've been made. This week, we're going to talk about pride and the influence of pride in our heart. How we think money is mine. Declan, third one. God wants to confront our pride. I think it was 3 o'clock in the morning, Declan. During our home fellowship group last Sunday, our group had quite a discussion on giving. It was really honest. And um, many different issues came up. Like, I wish I had a button. Somebody said, I wish I had a button that I could wear when the plate goes by that says, don't judge me, I paid online. I love that idea. <laughs> I won't admit who that was. That was really funny. Another question came up a lot in our discussion, and it's the subject for today, and it was asked in a very honest way. Here's how they asked it. Do I have to be cheerful when I give? Why can't a person be grumpy when they give? Can a guy be grumpy when they give? Why do I have to be joyful? Well, that's the question, and we're going to discuss this, and it comes from 2 Corinthians chapter 9. It's a verse that was mentioned even on the slide by Mark and TJ, and it's, uh, we're going to look at verses 6 to 8, 2 Corinthians 9, 6 to 8. Paul is talking about the process of giving in the Corinthian church. He wanted them to give for a special project in Jerusalem. And he's trying to compel them in a giving campaign. And he says in verse 6 of chapter 9, Remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each man should give what he has decided in his heart to give. Not reluctantly or under compulsion, and that's not guilt. For God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. So the focus is on the middle of verse 7, or the end of verse 7, for God loves a cheerful giver. The Greek word for cheerful here 
is hilaron, where we get the word hilarious. However, we've kind of expanded on hilarious to mean funny. But this isn't what the word means. But some churches have actually taken this word and interpreted it to mean that when we give, we should laugh like crazy. You know, the plate comes around, we should go, <laughs> he loves my children. I can't wait. Oh, I don't think that's what it means. Some churches have you dance up in front of the church, like Fabian Freeland, who is one of our missionaries, said every time they take offering in Cameroon, they dance up. You know, we all, we have to have that, whatever that thing is, you know, the, I can't, that's crazy. I can't, how do you do that? That's what we got to do. No. No. The question is, is that what it means to be a cheerful giver? Not exactly. The word in context here in chapter 9 means more appropriately, not grudgingly. Or willingly, freely. That's really the idea. And in the context, the idea actually is it's a fitting response to what has been done for you. Since God has given generously to you a fitting or an appropriate response is generosity. But I must admit, I have to admit, most of the time giving cheerfully is not the case. Giving often feels like somebody's taking a pry bar on my wallet and opening it. Ah! No! Or I had this old Catholic school teacher, I talk of her every once in a while, her name was Sister Joan of Arc. I can remember one day she threatened me with a yardstick to take my milk money and give it to Mary, Sacred Heart of Mary. I didn't want to do that. I wanted milk. She was mad and she'd hit you. So, okay, sister, that's a good boy. If we were honest, to be happy that I'm being separated from my hard-earned cash that I sweated for, that I had personal dreams for, it seems kind of hypocritical to be happy about that. It's like I'm play-acting. We're not supposed to be hypocrites, are we? And two particular groups, I think, have in their heart, they feel they have reasons to be grumpy. That there's a case that can be had for grumpiness. And these two groups, the first group I call the legalist camp. For them, your money and what you do with it is a very serious matter. Very serious. And people should never joke around with what they do with their money. You've met the legalists. You can hear the legalists. Their voices say stuff like, there needs to be an accounting for every nickel, every quarter. God knows when a person's fudging the numbers. He sees. He sees you. This group is adamant. Giving is something that you must teach from the pulpit more often. Don't let people off the hook. We need more teaching on it. And I think for the legalists, if we laugh at it or dance around about it, people will not treat it in the manner it should be treated. There's a propriety. Giving is a serious, weighty matter. We should be serious about it. We need to be stern and have urgent plea. Seriousness to a vast majority of people means maturity. One man described how people think in this group, we need to be all in. Everyone pulling their weight. There needs to be total commitment on everyone's part or God, not a, God is not going to get what he deserves. I read this book recently by Robert Bly. It's called The Sibling Society. It describes the legalist like this. It's an interesting description. The legalist is the institutional tyrant. 
the one with the thin nose and the black coat and the steel-rimmed glasses. You can see him. You've seen the legalist. There's another camp, I think, that also crosses their arms, and they're quite proud about it, and I'm going to call this the realist camp. There's a fancy theological word for this camp. They're called antinomians, no law. In other words, don't tell me what to do. But the realist camp. This group would say grumpiness has nothing to do with other people not giving. It's about how I personally feel about it. When it comes to my responsibility to a group, I never get excited because I don't like giving myself to what others have decided for me. Mainly because I often feel manipulated by the larger group. I want to do things on my own terms. So, they would say, when I cross my arms and refuse to smile and I don't buy into this group think, it's just the way I am. I'm just being honest. I'd rather be honest than fake, you know. People need to be authentic. And if they're not happy, they shouldn't have to fake it. Plus, I must first take care of myself because no one else will. The world is a mean place. I have bills stacking up, taxes to pay, gas prices are rising, health insurance is going up, and have you seen the price of a gallon of milk? I had a grandfather that would go to different gas stations to see which gallon of milk was cheaper. If he could get two cents off, he was victorious. If God wants me to give, he better do something for me first, some of them think. The realist camp also does not like to do things just because they're done that way. I'm my own person. No institution has the right to tell me what to do and definitely not tell me to give cheerfully. And so both groups are proud of their grumpiness to some degree. But I want to argue today that both of these attitudes, both of these attitudes, are born from the same place, the realm of of pride. I want to take you in the book of Mark to one of the most joyless stories ever. It's a horrible story. And it should be a place of hilarity and dancing. It should be. But it's a place, I mean, of joylessness. It's a shocking story. It's in Mark chapter 3, Verses 1 through 6. And I want you to just think about this a second because I think this exposes the attitude of both groups that lies also at the root of why some people don't give, actually. Mark chapter 3, 1 through 6. Begins by saying, Another time Jesus went into the synagogue and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. So they watched him closely to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath. Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, stand up in front of everyone. Then Jesus asked them, which is lawful on the Sabbath? To do good or to do evil? To save life or to kill? But they remained. Silent. He looked around at them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn heart, said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was completely restored. Then it says the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. You've got to be kidding me. 
Do you feel the smallness of everyone? The smallness of what stubbornness does to humanity? Do you see their pride, their selfishness? They stopped the party of hilarity that they should be happening. A guy had a withered hand. A hand is an amazing gift by God. It's a work of art, what you can do with a hand. If you didn't have your hand, you would be, you don't understand how incredible this gift is. But his hand was shriveled. He couldn't use it. And he's standing in front of people. And they're standing like this. And Jesus basically says, should you do good or kill? And he's pointing at the hand. Should I heal him or not? I know it's a Sabbath. I understand that. But what should you do? Good? Or let the guy stay with a shriveled hand? But even before this discussion arises, look at verse 2. It says, some of them, specifically talking about the Pharisees, the leaders of the Jewish people, the religious people, we're looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. So they watched him closely to see if he would heal on the Sabbath. Because you know you're not supposed to do anything on the Sabbath. That's what the law says. It's the law. Pharisee doesn't care about a man in pain. I only care about what is the proper behavior for everyone according to the law. They have a pretty good idea that Jesus is not going to abide by that behavior. They're looking to accuse. That's all the legalist does is look how everyone else fails as compared to them. They don't care about the immediate needs. They don't care about setting a man free. They don't care about making the world a better place. They only care about controlling everyone and telling them what to do. When it comes to giving, the legalist only cares about how much you should give and is looking for those who are not giving their fair share so they can wag their finger, say, shouldn't we be doing more? And some said, I've done enough. And when you're only focusing on others you are not, who are not pulling their load, there's really no joy. There's no joy in this story. None. When it's all about meeting rules and measurements, it's joyless, it's duty-bound, it's demanding, and it makes everything a pain. And then you have verse 4. Verse 4 in Mark, this, this is also in the book of Luke and it's also in the book of Matthew, but it, the Pharisees aren't the only ones that were in this room. It's a synagogue, a church full of people. And he looks around, it says in verse 4, and then he asks everybody the question, what's better, to do good or do evil, to save life or kill? And says, but they remain silent. Is it just talking about the Pharisees? I think everyone was. No one had the guts to answer his question. Nobody ever has the guts to stand up against a legalist. In fact, in verse 5, as he looks around the whole room, it says all he sees are stubborn people. Stubborn hearts. That means immovable. I'm where I am, and I'm not going to move. That's where I'm always going to be. People who only care about themselves. The silent majority in the story represents the realist. What, what, what can we really do, Jesus, for this man with the shriveled hand? What, what good can we do? His hand has been shriveled for years. I don't want to make the leaders mad at me. They'll go on the attack if I even speak up. So I better keep to myself and mind my own business. 
And plus, life's hard and I'm just trying to survive because God's not going to help this poor, pathetic man anyhow. That's the realist, telling it like it is, just being honest, facing the facts, and really, when you have just facts, there's no room for miracles. When it comes to giving in a church, who really expects people to give more than they have before? Why even try a campaign? Every church around America only gives around 3 to 4%. So why should we try for more? You want to know my opinion? I think we should just try to squeeze everyone in this building, focus on paying off the debt. Sure, it might take 15 years. If we lose people, we lose people. Who needs strange people anyhow? We've got to use up all the space we can. There's still a lot of empty space, and we can suck it up. But watch what also happens in the story. Verse 6, Jesus said, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was completely restored. Could you imagine the man whose hand was shriveled, and he can use it again? Jesus decides to heal the poor guy anyway, regardless of what the legalist and realist think. And you know why? Because he's God. He's generous. And he abounds in grace. And he loves the people he made. He loves us. That's the truth. I want to show you just briefly where grumpiness comes from. I'm going to talk about the joyless roots of legalism and realism, and everything seems to start, I think, in the same place, the garden. I'm going to read from this book. It's called The Whole Christ by Sinclair Ferguson. And I'm just going to paint for you what happened in the garden through his words. I think he does a marvelous job. Just listen closely. He begins by saying, The root of legalism is almost as old as Eden, which explains why it is a primary, if not the ultimate, pastoral problem. In seeking to bring freedom from legalism, we are engaged in the undoing of the ancient work of Satan. In Eden, the serpent persuaded Eve and Adam that God was possessed of a narrow and restrictive spirit bordering on the malign, meaning bordering on evil, God's strictness was almost mean after all the serpent whispered isn't it true that he placed you in this garden full of delight and has now denied them all to you for the serpent's question carried a deeply sinister innuendo and here it is what kind of god would deny you pleasure and joy if he really loved you. He allows you nothing and yet demands you obey him. That's the lie. Doesn't the fruit look good and you can't have that? Huh. Despite initial struggle, Eve's ears were soon closed off to God's word. The serpent's tactic was to lead her into seeing and interpreting the world through her eyes, what she looked at the tree rather than through her ears what God actually said to her. Her So her gaze was diverted from the superabundant plenty God had commanded our first parents to enjoy. The use of the verb is very significant. The enjoyment of plenty is the first element in the command that God gave them. But the serpent's tactic was to cause a fixation on the one negative command. 
We fixate on what he says you shall not have. Do not eat of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, lest you die. Now all Eve saw from God was negativity, a negative command. One small object near the eye can make all larger objects invisible. Now it was the sight of the forbidden tree, blocking her vision of a garden abounding in trees. Now she could not see the forest for the tree. Now her eyes were on God, the negative lawgiver and judge. In both mind and affections, God's law was now divorced from God's gracious person. I want, Eve says, but can't have. God gives joy-stealing laws. He takes from me what should be my happiness and steals it away. The root of her antinomianism, which is what we're going to say realism or not trusting God to give her joy, was actually rooted in a legalism that was darkening her understanding, dulling her senses, and destroying her affection for her heavenly Father. Now, like a pouting child of the most generous father, she acted as though she wanted to say to God, you never give me anything. You insist on me earning everything I'm ever going to have. When the distortion of God's character is complete, we inevitably mistrust him, we lose sight of his love and grace, we see him essentially as a forbidding God. Legalism is simply separating the law of God from the person of God. And so the result is this. Legalism obeys because he's mean. I better obey because he's mean. If I don't obey him, he's just going to punish me. And realism, however, finds joy without him. So you could say it like this. If we play it out with our money, because money in our eyes is the means that we have in our possession to find joy outside the realm of God. That's why I want money, because I can find joy apart from him. I will give just enough to keep him happy and use the rest to keep me happy. Pride will always separate God's happiness from mine. They're never joined. I will give just enough to keep him happy and use the rest to keep me happy. Let's talk about how this works itself out in the realm of tithing now. When I was a kid, tithing was a regular discussion in church and at home. I can remember my dad waking up every Sunday and writing out a check, and then often when we were sitting in the pew, he'd hand me a few dollars from his wallet, and the plate would go by, and he'd say, Chris, put that in there. It's a learn that practice. I can remember that. He wanted to teach me tithing. But since about the 1980s, around 1982, 83, when seeker-sensitive model of doing church started catching on, the subject of tithing has been pushed aside. It's been be- verbotum, another one of those words in the church. We don't talk about it because you don't want people to be sent away. Could you imagine you're trying to have somebody come in who's interested in God? You talk about money, they don't want to hear about that. They see those preachers on TV all the time. So, shh, quiet. Shh. Well, here's tithing defined. Tithing defined is a very simple idea which began in Genesis 18.20. Abraham gave the priest Melchizedek a tenth of everything. He's the priest of Salem, representing the high priest of God. Abraham saw him, gave him a tenth of everything. Deuteronomy affirms this idea of the tithe of saying, give the first fruits of your crops to God 
as worship. That's all it is. That's all it is. It's a 10% giving of your first fruits as worship. That's all it is. That's the definition. But definitions make us feel guilty these days. We don't like definitions. People get sensitive to definitions. Just try to tell a transgendered male who wants to be a woman that a woman are, by definition, only ones who can bear children get pregnant. Don't tell them that these days, but that's just the definition. It's simply a definition. Tithing means 10% of your first earnings. Okay, now, when you give a definition, when you explain something, it then becomes filtered by the mind of the hearer. And so the legalist hears it differently than the realist, differently than the cheerful giver. So when you talk about tithing to the legalist, we find them in the book of Luke, chapter 18, verse 12. Watch how the legalist views tithing. Luke 18, verse 12. If you look in your Bibles, it'll probably say the parable of the Pharisee and the collector, tax collector, starting in verse 9 of Luke 18. Begins in verse 9, to some who are confident of their own righteousness and look down on everybody else, Jesus told the parable. So he's describing the legalist. In verse 9, they were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else. Jesus told the parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other tax collector. The Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all that I get. So what is going on? Tithing for the legalist is a way to compete in righteousness, to show, according to verse 9, that they're better than everybody else. He sees, the legalist sees tithing as a way to show his superiority over the other slackers. You know, these evildoers, these robbers. But what's fascinating is look at his prayer. He begins in verse 11. God, I thank you. Who, but this, so one writer says this. The form of his prayer is a Jewish form of thanksgiving when you give gratitude to God, but who is he actually thanking? Himself. He's not thanking God. He's thanking himself. Thank you, God, that I'm better than everybody else. It's an odd form of thanksgiving. Legalism is all about proving to God that he sure is lucky to have a guy like me following him. Look at me, God. Aren't I a great guy? So the legalist will go to great pains to figure out exact amounts and measurements so he can prove his worthiness. 10% is a must, and it better be exactly to the dollars and cents. So it's all about numbers and me and how I meet the criteria because I'm righteous. The realist we find in Jude 1.4. I'm reading from the NIV because... Um, it expresses a little bit differently what I'm trying to say. Jude is right before Revelation, and it shows the hard attitude of what I'm going to call the antinomian, or the person who does not like God's laws. But they like to present themselves as followers, but they want nothing to do with God's laws. And it's talking in verse 4 of Jude, certain men whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you, so they are... They're part of the church. They've slipped in. They're godless men 
who changed the grace of our God into a license for immorality. And the word is license. A grace becomes freedom to not follow God. Underneath it all, they're self-seeking, and the self-seeking person uses the freedom of grace to stay independent from God. What does that mean? Well, you could hear it a million times. I'm saved by grace, not by work, so I don't need to do anything to keep God's favor. And now, when it comes to tithing, we're in a New Testament grace. That was a part of the Mosaic Law. I don't need to give really anything. Will you just let me be, preacher? Get off my back. I don't need to listen anymore. That was Old Testament. Regulations. Set free. Both of these attitudes, if you look closely, see giving as a burden, they see it as a chore, and they see it as a pain. And really, it's God's fault. He is laying a heavy, unfair punishment on the poor follower who only wants to live his life. Listen to what Sinclair Ferguson says even further about pride in the heart. It's fascinating. Both the legalist and the realist, or the antinomian, the no-law person, see the law as the problem. Both, both of them see the law as the problem. So we would say in our case, it's even talking about tithing and a, a giving campaign. That's the problem. But Paul, time and time again, says it's not the law that's the problem. It's sin working in my heart. So the real enemy is indwelling sin. And to abolish the law, standards that will help you be obedient to God, that will be pleasing to Him, and good for you to stop talking, to abolish the law, to stop talking about it, stop talking about even tithing, would be to execute the innocent. That's a fascinating statement. So the law is actually the innocent party, and we look at it as the evil one. What's evil sin inside of me, wanting me to be separated from God's will. So how should a person see giving? How does a truly cheerful giver respond to the idea of tithing? If we go to 2 Corinthians 9, we'll see very specifically in 6 through 8. I'll read it again. 9, 2 Corinthians 9, 6 through 8. Remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each man should give what he has decided in his heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And, this is the coolest part, verse 8, and God is able to make all grace, all grace abound to you, so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. So just three observations from this. Number one, when you talk to a cheerful heart, they will see tithing as a guideline. They don't get mad at the definition. They see it as a pattern of worship. First fruits make sense to the cheerful giver, and most are happy to have a guideline. It's a guideline. Not a you must. Secondly, from this, tithing is not a hard and fast rule. Give what you want, he says. Each man, verse 7, should give what he's decided in his heart to give. Give what you want. Give what you can. Which means you can give more if you're led to. God doesn't dwell in simmering anger. 
Psalm 16 says, at the right hand of God are pleasures forevermore. He's not isolated from pleasure. He is pleasure. He's our pleasure. C.S. Lewis, he once said, the problem with the average Christian is it isn't that they want things. It's they don't want the good thing. It's like a child who'd rather play with mud puddles instead of enjoying a day at the beach with the family. It's not that we don't, it's bad to want things. It's just that we don't want the best of things. Third thing from this, according to verse 8, when you give, you know God has your back. He says in verse 8, God is able to make all grace abound to you so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need. He's got me. The legalist says, look at me. The realist says, just let me be. Get off my back. The cheerful giver says, God's got me. I'll be all right. And I'm, I'm his. One writer has said this, God's grace towards us reproduces his graciousness in us. And that pleases him. I read a story about this congregation in Texas. They began to give generously and cheerfully, and they, they wrote about it in the local newspaper. The newspaper said, as people began to struggle with the downturn in the economy in 2009, Cross Timbers Community Church in Argyle, Texas, attempted to help. The pastor told the people, when the offering plate comes by, if you need money, take it from the plate. The church gave away $500,000 in just two months. They help single moms, widows, a local mission, and some families behind on their utility bills. The day they announced the take-from-the-plate offer, they received their largest offering ever. That's, a, that's faith right there. We have our own personal story. We asked our leadership during this campaign to give what I would call a beginning seed offering to kickstart our campaign. So who we asked are the elders, pastors, deacons, and building committee. That's our leadership team. And we asked them to fill out the cards and hand them in last week. We had, uh, on Friday, we had 17 that came in. And they promised in three years to give 107,616. Two more came in, so it's 19 at about 130,000. That's about 5% of our church. If you're good at calculating, that doesn't reach necessarily the full goal of what we want to raise. It's a lot of money. But there's one thing you need to know about the leaders. Most of them are already tithing. So this is over and above what they're already giving. And I dare say most of them are at about 10%. So who knows? Who knows what kind of money's out there? The realist, the legalists will say, oh, people just aren't giving the Reels will say, why even try? The cheerful giver will say, I believe in grace. We'll see. We will see. In conclusion, I want to take you to an amazing psalm. I want you to go to Psalm 112. I love this psalm because it reminds me of my dad, I'll be honest with you. It talks about the man who fears God, and it describes him. And the reason why I say this reminds me of my dad, and I don't mean to exalt my dad. My dad had tons of flaws, but my dad, he had to raise six kids in a pretty turbulent 1970s when he was a salesman at a job that 
I once would say it like you would say it like this. He sold basically air conditioners up in Minnesota. It's like selling ice to Eskimos. You know, and so... But here's what it said. I can remember many days going to my dad, kind of being nervous, even about, I don't know why, I was always, I was a worried kid. I was always worried we're going to be, lose our house. My dad always joked around with me, driving a country, and he'd see like a little shack. He'd go, looks like we're going to be living there in a couple weeks. I'd be terrified, you know? He knew how to get me. He's like, Chris, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Dad, do you want me to work, Chris? Relax, you're three years old. Don't worry about it. Wait till you're five to... But Psalm 112 is great. It says, praise the Lord. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord and finds great delight in his command. That's an amazing statement. His children will be mighty in the land. What that means is they'll be leaders. They'll be strong. The generation of the upright will be blessed. Wealth and riches are in his house and his righteousness endures forever. And then look at verse 4. Even in darkness, light dawns for the upright, for the gracious and compassionate and righteous man. Good will come to him who is generous and lends freely, who conducts his affair with justice. Surely he will never be shaken. A righteous man will never be, re will re be remembered forever. He will have no fear of bad news. His heart is steadfast. Trusting in the Lord, his heart's secure. He will have no fear. In the end, he will look and triumph on his foes. He's scattered abroad his gifts to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. His horn will be lifted high in honor. The wicked men will see and be vexed. He will gnash his teeth and waste away. The longings of the wicked will come to nothing. But my favorite part is verse 7. You will have no fear of bad news. And even in the midst of bad news, he still gives his gifts to the poor. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who finds great delight in his commands. That's the point. Great delight is another word for cheerfulness. It's, a, it's an honor to serve God and obey him. It's an honor. It's not a burden. It's not a... I don't know. God is good. That's all I can say. He really is good. And if you hear one thing about our church leadership, we're just trying to do His will. 